Let's turn to our scripture for today, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 to 13. Again, the passage is Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 to 13. And the title of the sermon is The Antidote to Suffering. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We are finishing up our short series on suffering today. We've been looking for several weeks at what Scripture tells us about suffering, it tells us how to understand what we're going through when life is hard, tells us how to connect with God in those times. Most important, it tells us a number of reasons why we would want to trust Him when we're facing hard things. For today, I want to look at a couple of very practical things that we can do when we're suffering, not after it's over, but things that in the moment will transform us as people that will give us spiritual power to deal with the hardships of life instead of just trying to avoid them or to get through them as quickly as possible. And that's what you see Paul holding out to the Philippian church, that they really can be people, verse 4, who rejoice in the Lord always. He says that's really possible. That they can be, verse 5, reasonable, Gentle would be another translation. Reasonable with everybody that they run into, even those who are unreasonable. That the Philippians can be, verse 6, people who are not anxious about anything. But instead of being marked by anxiety and frustration, verse 7, they experience the peace of God in the present moment. Now, if you look at that list, it sounds challenging to live like that when life is going well to be joy-filled, gentle with others, not worried, marked by a sense of peacefulness. That's challenging when life is going well. But life was not going well for the Philippians. They were facing a number of challenges. Some of those challenges came from outside, opposition from the surrounding unbelieving world. A number of those challenges arose from within. There were theological controversies that threatened to derail people's faith. Other people were pressing their own agendas inside the church. There were disagreements between people that were both obvious and unresolved. 
And so you had a church culture where there were divisions, there was grumbling, there was arguing. And it all took place inside the pressure cooker of a church struggling with real financial difficulties. This was not a church that was doing well, but Paul writes that they can be. And you could argue that they need to be. That they need to handle suffering well, handle the pressures and the hardships of a broken world filled with broken people, that they need to handle suffering well because it does not depend on what you're facing or on who you are, but depends on who you're relying on in order to deal with all that. And Paul knew that firsthand. He's writing this letter to them from prison, and this is not the first time that he's been in prison. In fact, the Philippians had a front row seat to that one time. Paul had been attacked by a mob in their city. He was beaten by the magistrates, thrown into prison, and he'd been forced to leave the city, cut off those relationships. They, the Philippians, knew that Paul knew what it was to suffer. And yet here he is again writing to them from prison. About this time, he's been there roughly around three years. He's in limbo. He's waiting to plead his case before Caesar. And while he's there, he's had some good ministry opportunities, but he's also faced some real hardships. He's had to rely on other people to provide for his physical needs. He's lived with uncertainty about his future. He's not able to continue his plans to bring the gospel to other parts of the world. And he's also had people on the outside who are trying to stir up trouble for him on the inside. So when Paul talks about joy and peace while suffering, he does so with real integrity. He has faced real tremendous suffering in the past. He's living with it now. And he's writing to a struggling, suffering church, and he says to them, you can have exactly the same kind of joyful, even-keeled, peace-filled, anxiety-free life that I live. And that's true for you and for me this morning as well. Now, to get that kind of life, we're going to consider three things from today's passage. First, we'll consider the nature of what God is offering. Second, what we need to do in order to get what God is offering. And then third, how that differs from the best that human wisdom offers. So first, the nature of what God is offering. Verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So what's at issue here? It's being content. That's what God is offering. That doesn't mean that you like what you're dealing with, but it means that you're not consumed by it. It does not become the all-absorbing center of your life. You know how that can be, right? Where all of your attention contracts down to this one point of what you're going through. It's almost like you're not even aware of anything else in the world around you. Where you have no room to think about anyone else. Where you think it only makes sense to think about what this thing is all the time. To focus on it. To talk about it in every conversation you have. And where it seems like the only thoughts that you have endlessly cycle back around to how bad it is. Cycle back to how much you hate it. To wonder how much longer you have to put up with it. And how while you're in that mode, it feels like all of the happiness has just been so totally sucked out of the room that the world feels dark, cold, 
Great, you're deeply dissatisfied with life. That is not contentment. Contentment is when you are still very much aware of this thing. You're not playing, let's pretend. Let's pretend this awful thing isn't happening. It's not contentment. Contentment is when you live saying, this is happening, but it's not the only thing that's happening. It's not the only thing that's happening. It's not the primary thing that I have built my life on. Jesus is. And because Jesus is still the same, because he still loves me with as much passion as he ever did, because he's not going away, this other thing, physical suffering, financial suffering, relational suffering, this other thing doesn't have the ability to take me out because my life is built on something that I still have. And so it means that suffering doesn't control your life. You're not rocked at your most fundamental level while you deal with this other thing because the foundation of your life has not changed. And so you can respond to life with joy because you've not attached ultimate joy to the thing that suffering takes away from you. Your ultimate joy is attached to Jesus and you can't lose him. Nothing can take you away from him. Nothing can take him away from you. And so because your joy is wrapped up in him, in having him, you can be reasonable, gentle with others who aren't gentle with you. Because your attitude toward them doesn't depend on them being good to you, it depends on God being good to you. And so you can be good to them. Your attitude towards them doesn't depend on your circumstances being stable. It depends on your relationship with Christ being stable. You can think about others and about their needs because Jesus thinks about you and about your needs. And because your life with him doesn't change, you can be content. Not just in one or two isolated situations when all the stars align and they give you the life that you've always wanted. But you can be content, like Paul says, verse 11, in whatever situation you're in. In all situations, in everything that you deal with life, in life. And just to make sure that he's not, you know, speaking hyperbolically there, go back over the passage. And you'll see Paul make that point over and over and over and over again. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. No exceptions, no times left out. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, not just to those who you think are reasonable. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Not about the test that you're taking tomorrow, not your upcoming physical exam, not your meeting with your child's teacher, not your financial portfolio, not what's going on in the larger world. Do not be anxious about anything. But verse 6 again, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. Make sure you're talking to him about everything in your life. Verse 4, Paul's learned to be content in whatever situation. We just talked about that. He unpacks it more in verse 12 in case you missed it. He says that means in any and every circumstance. Not a single circumstance left out. Instead, there is nothing where Paul says, oh, you know what, you're right. There is that thing over there. That one, that circumstance is pretty bad. And to be fair, that one really is too much to deal with. It's too big for what God offers. Yeah, sure, he can strengthen you to deal with normal suffering, but that one, even that's too big for him. He just doesn't have the ability to give you what you need to handle something like that. 
Paul doesn't say that. Do you think, can, can you see how crazy it would be to think like that? Think about it. Jesus Christ did what? He went through the wrath of God for you. He went through suffering that was so immense, so horrific, that simply getting a small taste of it in the Garden of Gethsemane drove him to his knees. He asked the Father if there was any possible way out of it. Sweat poured off of him like great drops of blood. The suffering that your sin and mine deserves to be cut off from God's goodness forever is literally unimaginable. Up to that point, Jesus knew that he came to this earth to die. He taught that everywhere he went, over and over and over. But in the garden, he got a taste of it, a preview of it. And when he did, he longed for some way to skip it, some way to avoid having to face what it means to see God's frown and not his smile. That's when Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. That's how bad it was. And then he continued, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus longed to not pay the consequences for what you and I owe, but he paid them anyway. He had the strength, the strength of character, the strength of determination to face it, the ability to endure it, to take the full justice of God poured out in wrath when he didn't have to, to take it when he could have rescued himself from it at any moment, when he could have said, no, this is too much. I'm not going to do this. I don't have to. When Jesus could have said that, he didn't. He stayed there in the garden, waiting to be arrested. He stayed there in Pilate's palace when the soldiers mocked and beat him. He stayed there on the cross, holding himself there, holding himself in the wrath of God, absorbing it all. Now that you're connected to him, united to him so that you share his life with him, do you really think that there's anything you're going to face that comes close to what he's already gone through? Anything that would need that level of strength to deal with? Because of course not. Everything that you face, as bad as it is, and some of it is really bad, I'm not minimizing what you face, but everything that you face is much less than what Jesus has already proven he can handle. Much less than what his strength has already had to deal with. That means now that you're connected to him, you will never face anything, regardless of how bad it is, that he cannot strengthen you to deal with. You have all the resources of heaven at your disposal. You have his Holy Spirit living inside of you, ready to pour God's strength into you. What can you possibly deal with that's greater than the strength that he can give? There isn't any created thing that you can face that he, the creator, cannot empower you to deal with. That's why Paul concludes the way he has to conclude. That verse 13, I can do all things. Not some things, not most things, not everything but that thing. But I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so can you. Because it's not anything special about Paul. What's special 
is it's Christ. That means you can live a life of deep, deep commitment, uh, contentment. So point two, how? What do you need to do in order to get this kind of contentment? Start by realizing that it's a process. A process that you have to intentionally enter into. It's not all at once. The end of verse 12, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I have learned. Paul says that it didn't come to me all of a sudden. Wasn't something natural that I was born with. He doesn't say I came into this world with a basically positive, optimistic outlook on life, a sunny disposition. Instead, he says, this is something I learned. Something that took time and effort. But it was something where the time and effort paid off. I needed to learn it. And I did learn it. Paul says you can too. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. You can learn this secret if you practice. If you put in the time and effort. Doing the same kind of things that the Philippians heard and saw in Paul. So what are those things? There's a number of them in the passage. We'll just look at two this morning. Two things that if you will practice, they will help you to learn this same secret of facing everything in life so that you are joy-filled, peaceful, so that you end up, like Paul, thinking about other people who are suffering, caring about them. What are those two things? You need to learn first to think, and second, to thank. To think and to thank. First, to think. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think. Think about these things. Paul is saying that you don't live the Christian life on autopilot. Where does your mind go when you're on auto? Doesn't it tend to gravitate toward the things in life that you don't like? The things that upset you? You find yourself replaying ugly conversations you've had? You remember the bad things that someone else has done to you? Or you remember how badly you responded to someone else? Or you spend a lot of time just coming back over and over and over, thinking about all the things that you don't have that you really think you should have? That's what autopilot is like in a broken world. It has a center of gravity that draws you away from the Lord and away from what God is doing. What is God doing? God is actively engaged in this world. He's working in it, working to restore it. Those are the things that capture him. Those are the things that he fills his mind with. That's what he imagines. He doesn't sit around envisioning a world of evil and darkness. Dreams about one of joy, one of light. What does that mean? It means that all of the, the nasty, the painful things that you and I bump up against on a daily basis, all of them one day will be gone. They're going to be replaced by his justice that leaves no tears. And so now you have a choice being connected to him. You can pay attention and you can zero in on the things that align with what God is doing, with what 
have real staying power. You can think about whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy. You can spend your day filling your mind with those things, thinking about them, paying attention to where you see God at work in this world. Or you can spend your day filling your mind with the things that darkness is doing. You can think about them, paying attention to where you see sin and evil at work. But recognize something. You're going to direct your mind to one or the other. And the one that you direct your mind to has everything to do with what you expect was going to win out on this earth. And this is one of those litmus tests for you and me to see what we functionally believe is most true about the world. Not what we believe theoretically. Do you believe God or evil wins? Well, I believe God wins, but I spend all day long replaying conversations with people who were mean to me. I dwell on those evil encounters. I fill my mind with them. If that's the case, you might theoretically say that God wins in the end, but functionally, you're not living like that's the case. Instead, you live like he's not strong enough to win, that his strength is insufficient, and therefore, what? what's needed is your strength, your ability to outthink, to outsmart the evil that you encounter so that you can strengthen yourself and avoid as much suffering as you can. What you spend your day filling your mind with has everything to do with what you trust, with what you worship. But even if you worship the Lord, thinking about what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, all those other things, that's something that does not come naturally to us. We have to train ourselves in it. And this training has to start young. Parents, you have to help your kids grow in their ability to look for what God is doing in his world. You have to help them learn that. Teens and students, you have to work now to train yourself to do this kind of looking. It's not enough to come to church or to youth group and expect that that kind of thinking is ah, it's just going to sort of rub off on you. It's not enough to believe that having Pastor Nick do it is going to be enough for you. You're going to have to do it yourself. I remember one time during dinner, my family was eating together, we're sharing our days with each other, and one of our teens was going through one of those phases where nothing was good anywhere. Teens, you know what that's like, right? It, 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 it probably sounds like a lot of conversations you have with your parents. It sounded something like this. I asked, so how was your day? Fine. Came back the answer, a little head shake. Yeah, okay, let's try again. Um, so uh, anything special about your day? No. Now I'm getting a little desperate. There was nothing good in it at all? Nope. Now, this is one of those places where this young person is doing everything possible to say, do not invade my space. Go away. Leave me alone. Just as an aside, why do young people do that? Because it works. It's so easy in that moment for me as a parent to think, fine. <laughs> you don't want to talk. You don't want to share your life. You don't have to. You're miserable to be with. Why would I want any part of that? But you realize that if Sally and I do that, we're basically saying to our child, it's okay, you don't need a parent right now. God was wrong. 
You don't need someone right now who loves you enough to involve yourself, themselves in your life for your good. You're big enough to parent yourself. So go ahead. You set the agenda. We'll go along with it. And I'm sure you'll be fine. You just keep training yourself to live in this world, not thinking about what God is doing, not looking for where he's doing it. I'm sure it'll work out. Fine. That that approach to life will not cause any problems between you and God. It won't cause any problems between you and anyone else. That would be so easy to do at dinner that night. That is not why God blessed us and gave us this child in our family. Not why he gave this image of himself to us. It's not how he intends our children to learn about him and his ways. So I said something to this child I was trying to be gentle, something along the lines of, you know, God made a very good world. It's a world that he likes. It's one in which there are good things. And it's a world in which he's still active. He's still at work. It's a world in which he didn't quit. He's still doing good things. Jesus not only came into this world to save and rescue it, Jesus succeeded. He rose from the dead. He's alive right now. He's working hard to restore this world. That means it is not possible to go through any part of any day and not come face to face with something that God is doing, something good. You can only see nothing good by blocking out what God is doing. I think you need to try again. H how was your day? In other words, what am I saying in that moment? I'm saying be honest. Don't say you couldn't see anything good today, that there was nothing good to see. Instead, be honest. Say that you didn't want to see anything good today, that you would rather work hard not to see what God is doing. And that is just as true for me as it is for my child. There are days when I just don't want to see anything good. There are days when I enjoy just wrapping self-pity around myself like a blanket. Days when I like feeling bad, when I like feeling like a victim. Days when I enjoy catastrophizing, imagining the worst in any given situation. Days where I enjoy fixing my mind, thinking about the works and the workers of evil. Focus your mind in that direction, however, and you'll never get from there to contentment, to joy, to peace. That road does not go to contentment. And so the first thing that you have to do is you have to take yourself firmly in hand, and you have to make yourself think about the things that God is doing, the kind of things listed here in verse 8 that remind you of his restoration. You have to notice the restoring things that he's doing. You have to dwell on those things, think about them, meditate on them, so that you see his work more clearly. That mind direction does lead to contentment. Just like, secondly, a life of thanksgiving will. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if you think about it, Paul just said something that you probably don't do. I don't mean pray or ask God for things, supplications, you probably do that. But do you ask God 
with thanksgiving, with, at the same time as, do you thank God at the same time as you ask him for something? Now, you might be thinking, well, wait, <laughs> how do you do that? Don't, don't you have to wait to see if God answers your prayer before you can thank him for giving you what you asked? I mean, we all know this. What, what if he doesn't give you what you asked for? You know, and I know, that there are times when God doesn't. So how can you thank him when you don't even know if he's going to give you what you asked for? You thank him because you decide to thank him regardless. Regardless of whether he gives you what you asked for right then, or if he gives it later, or if he decides to never give it, you thank him now regardless of how or when he answers. How do you do that? You do that by teaching yourself to believe that what God decides to give you is the very best thing that he could have given you. Let's think that out. If you knew everything that God does, everything past, present, and future, if you knew every way that everything fits together in the world, if you knew what he knows and you assessed what you needed based on knowing everything, past, present, and future, then you would 100% agree with whatever he chooses to give you in your life if you knew everything that he knows. You would agree because you would say, yes, that is exactly what I needed in order to have the best life possible. I just couldn't see it. That's what I needed in order to be eternally happy, filled with more joy, more love, more peace than I can possibly imagine. And if only I knew all that God knows, that is exactly the thing that I would have asked for. I'm so thankful for what he's given. And so you thank him in the moment while you're praying before he responds to your prayer. Why? You thank him because you trust him. You trust that not only is he smarter than you are, but that he loves you with an undying love. And you know that he does already because you saw that kind of love at the cross. You saw him love you more than he loved his own life. And so you know that he will only use what he knows, his smartness, for what's best for you. He's not going to use what he knows to take advantage of you. not going to use it to hurt you. He will give you the very best that he has to give every single time. He already did before. You can count on him to keep doing that then throughout your whole life. When you have this kind of God, it frees you. You can actually go to him and you can say, this is really what I want. I might be asking for the wrong thing, but this is what I really want. And I am grateful, Lord, for anything that you give, for whatever you give. I said this to someone once, and she said, it was not Sal, I was talking to somebody else. She said, oh, I'll have to think about that. I don't think I could do that right now. If you're thinking something like that, then here's another place where you need to be honest with yourself. Don't say, I couldn't do that. Because of course you could. Instead, be honest. Say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to both ask God for something I really, really want and then thank him even if I don't get it. It's not that I couldn't think that way, that I couldn't thank him. 
It's that I want this thing so badly and I think I can't be happy without it that I don't want to thank him if he doesn't come through for me in the way that I think he should. Instead, I'd rather be unhappy with him. That's another path that will never get you to this radical kind of contentment that you see here. So those are two things that you can do. I would say that you need to do. That you need to practice doing if you're going to have a life of contentment. You have to practice doing them when you're suffering. But let me ask one more question for today. Point three. How is this any different from the best that human wisdom offers? How is this different from just being stoic? Just okay, I just have to accept whatever life throws at me. Or on the other hand, how is this different from the power of positive thinking, of always looking at the bright side of life, of counting your blessings? Or even how is this different from just ignoring hard things, of putting on rose-colored glasses so that you don't see the harsh realities of life, or of laughing in the face of danger, just sort of plowing through? How is this any different from the best that our secular and our religious worlds have always offered to people who are going through hard times. I've already said that it takes a supernatural reliance, that you have to experience your faith, you have to rely on Jesus to strengthen you, rely on him to empower you. But how do you know that's not just a mind game? Something that works for you, but won't work for other people. It's because of the result, verse 7. It's because what comes out of this approach to life is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. This kind of thinking and thanking doesn't leave you with a basic good feeling that's normal to the human condition. It's not going to give you a way of coping with life. Instead, you experience something that goes beyond all understanding. Something that you can't explain from a human-only point of view. Something that doesn't make sense given your circumstances. I mean, think about it. Think about what's going on with Paul here. Who in their right mind would say, oh, well, sure. I get how it's possible to be thrown in jail, to be harassed while you're there, and not be anxious about the future. I get how it's possible to be reasonable with all the people, the prisoners, the jailers that you engage with while you're there. I get how it's possible to have a positive outlook on life, to be marked by this incredible sense of peace that no one else there has. I understand how that's possible. It makes complete sense. No, it doesn't. That doesn't make any sense at all. There's something supernatural taking place. There's something which surpasses all understanding. That's the peace of God. That's his kind of peace. That's the peace that comes because he knows how everything's going to work out. He knows it's certain to be absolutely great, so great that it couldn't be better. That's his kind of peace. And you can only have that, the peace of God, if, if you have, verse 9, the God of peace. See, you can't have God's peace without having God himself. And that's why this kind of thinking and thanking is categorically different from anything that you find anywhere else. Because this kind of thinking and thanking doesn't make peacefulness its goal. 
This thinking and thanking makes God the goal. It makes being with him the goal. When he's the goal, his peace comes with him. But you can't have his peace if you're not interested in him. Or let me qualify that. If you're not interested in him for him, for himself, for simply having a relationship with him where you get him. And that is exactly what suffering reveals. It makes clear the reason why you want God. It makes clear why you want him. It makes clear whether you want him because of what he might be able to do for you or whether you want him because you can't imagine ever having anything better than him. To borrow from Tim Keller's vocabulary, suffering makes clear whether you want God because you find him useful or because you find him beautiful. Useful because he can help you out or beautiful because there's nothing better that he can give you than himself. I used this illustration a couple months ago, but it makes the point really well. Our youngest son took a co-op job working with cars. Why? It's not because he's a lifelong car guy, but because of all of the jobs that he was offered, this one looked like it gave a great opportunity for him now, given what they were paying, and it looked like it was the best for his career in terms of what he could learn there. He chose to work on cars. Why? Because they were useful. Useful to him and to what he wants out of life. But then along the way, something changed. Being around cars, around car guys all day, thinking about cars, focusing on cars, he now appreciates cars for themselves. And he talks now about having a hobby car someday about having one car that gets him off to work, but then having this other car that he just enjoys working on, fixing up. So he's thinking now about how to spend time and money on a car. Why? Because it would be useful? No, he's planning to have another one that'll get him around. That means he's not thinking of a hobby car as something useful. Not thinking of it as a means of getting him something else, but he's thinking about it as beautiful in and of itself before he found cars useful they helped him get money now he's willing to spend money to get them he's learned to find them beautiful not useful that's what jesus won for you in his death and resurrection he won for you the ability to see that God is beautiful. He won for you a change inside so that you now desire this God more than you desire what he can do for you. Jesus gave up earthly joy so that you could enter in to the joy of, uh, into his joy for eternity. He gave up peace with God on the cross as God forsook him so that you would know the God of peace. When God is beautiful to you, not useful, you will think about him as much as you can. You'll thank him just for being in your life. You'll want to see what is he up to in this world. You'll want to join him in it. And you'll find that the more that you do that, the more that you practice, the more contented you are in a way that can only be described as supernatural. Lord God, let us see your beauty. Let us see that as good as this earth is and as delightful as all the things in it uh, that we can encounter and engage. There's nothing as beautiful as you. 
nothing as glorious, nothing as praiseworthy. Lord, we've run out of vocabulary. Lord, take our hearts and move them. Let us see this. Let us desire you so that regardless of what we're engaging in this world, whether we are in plenty or in want, we can say that we have also found the secret of being content in every situation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.